This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Welcome to the latest edition of Life on Tour presented by Hilton, a podcast where we talk to the great and good of the European game and the world game indeed. And the, the person we're talking to in this episode is certainly great of the world game of golf. Uh, Welcome to Jose Maria Olazabal. Welcome, how are you? Hello, I'm okay. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well. <laughs> um, we're going to dig deep into your uh, your life, your back catalogue. But uh, actually, where we are, you're playing in a, a Stay Sure Tour event, mm-hmm. a Seniors Tour event. Uh, you, do you, you play many Seniors Tour events? Well, I play mainly uh, in the States, the Champions Tour. Uh, it's true that uh, here in Europe I play maybe two, three, four events uh, in a year. Um, don't play all that many in Europe because mainly I'm, I'm based uh, over there in the States. It's nice to catch up with some people. I just saw Woozy walking down the stairs. Yeah, that's great. Paul Laurie's here. Probably, yeah, we play know. together, actually, Woozy and I today. Yeah. Okay, what do you, what do you, well, there we go. There's, a, there's <laughs> an opener for you. Do you go back to the 91 Masters and he says, yeah. I got one of you there? Well, you were runner-up to him there, were you? Like, yes, he won. Uh, we got to the, to the event, funny enough, uh, like number one and two in the world. And he won the event, and I finished second yeah. Yeah, to him, yeah. Listen, I'm jumping way ahead of myself here, getting to the Masters. Let's go back, 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 back. Where and when did it start? So you're from Hondarabia, is that Yes, the... yes, that's a small small village uh, way up in the north of Spain, very close to the French border, on the west uh, side of the border with France. Uh, actually, it's just in the angle of the Bay of Biscay. It's a small uh, village, and... Um, I took up golf because, uh, you know, the golf course actually was built uh, in the land where my parents uh, worked. They were uh, farmers? Well, they were farmers. They didn't own the land. Uh, the land was owned by the landlord. And um, uh, people came uh, looking for a piece of land to build a golf course uh, because there was another golf course not far away, maybe half an hour or so from uh, my place but it had only nine holes and it was surrounded by by houses and they couldn't uh, build 18 holes there so they they were looking for for a new piece of land to build a golf course and they got in touch with the with the owner of the land and uh, he sold the the land and under one condition that every single family that worked the land would have a, a place to work on the golf course and uh, uh, funny enough, uh, my mom actually put uh, the flags of the front nine, uh, and I was born the following day. Right. Yeah. This was Real Golf Club, the San it's Sebastian. The San Sebastian. Yes. And you, so, and so, your father, because he'd been farming that land, did Correct. he take on a job as a greenkeeper? Well, first, yeah, first was my grandfather, and when he passed away, uh, my father took his spot. Yeah. Okay. You used to find some golf balls out there. Was Correct. That? Actually, uh, that's uh, obviously I didn't have any clubs, and uh, somebody uh, actually gave me a, a putter that we had to cut halfway down the shaft because obviously it was too big, and I used to go with my father whenever he was uh, cutting the roughs and all that uh, looking for balls and and that's how I got the the balls so the first shots that you hit were putts yes correct uh, putting me was only I would say 30 yards away from home uh, and uh, uh, those were uh, yeah the first shots that I hit yeah. how did it progress then how did you who, how did you get to more clubs and how did you hit more shots well uh, at the at the very beginning it was just a putter and um, I have to say that in those days uh, very few people play golf uh, during uh, weekdays uh, most of the time they played on on weekends uh, Saturdays and Sundays so virtually the golf course was you know just for me uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time on the putting green and as I started to grow up uh, you know I got a couple of clubs uh, one was a four wood and they, the other club was a seven iron mm. and when I was uh, five and a half six, I would say yeah, six years old I, I got my first uh, lessons uh, with a club pro and that's how everything evolved. Did you become good quickly? Did you did, did the game come easily to you? Well, I have to say that I spent a lot of time just playing the game. I don't know if if it came easy or not, but I spent a lot of time on my own, just hitting balls and uh, you know messing around. I remember um, when I first started, I, I did it on my own, and I I hit the ball right-handed, but my grip was a left-handed grip. And uh, when I first uh, went to to the professional to the coach there 
obviously he looked at me straight away and said, no, no, uh, you're gripping the club the wrong way. So you have to put the left hand on top and the, the right hand down the bottom. So I start hitting a few balls. I feel I felt completely uncomfortable. And every time he he walked away, I went back. I went back to the left-handed grip. So you started you started left below yeah, right. Then. Correct. Yeah, that was it. Uh, and then it took me a while. But uh, as I said, I spend a lot of time uh, on my own uh, putting and chipping. And I don't know if it came easy or not. But uh, you know, I think it was more down to the amount of time that uh, I spend. Uh, you know, playing golf. And did you like the, a lot of people who play golf, like the sort of solid, losing themselves on the practice ground or on the green, or being on their own? Did you like that sort of being on your own and then being your own? Yes, I had, a, I had a great time uh, in those days. I mean, I, I didn't need anybody else uh, to play. So it's, it's, golf is obviously it's an individual sport. So I didn't need to have any other kids, uh, you know, to play football or basketball or tennis. You need somebody else to play with. And um, with golf, um, it's just the opposite. I mean, you, you have a ball, a club, yourself, a golf course or a hole, and uh, that's it. But did you have a, did you have an inspiration? Because, you know, obviously Seve came late in your career, but yeah. he came to your club, did he not, at some point? Well, he, they used to play what he was called... Uh, the North Tour right, of Spain, and, and they used to start all the way west of the coast, and they kept on moving to eastwards. Mm. And there was a, an event, a professional event that was played uh, at uh, San Sebastian Golf Course, and uh, I was uh, lucky enough uh, to see Sevi play over there uh, when he was, I think it was like 17, 16, 17, I think he was uh, then. Um, and that was my first uh, contact with him, but obviously in those days, uh, well, nobody knew that uh, he would become one of the best players in, in the history of golf. So were you nine years younger? I was in those days, I was uh, eight, seven, eight. Okay. Seven, eight. Um, so your own golf progressed pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, uh, I, again, the first time I remember seeing your name was when you won the, the Boys Amateur Championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went on to win the amateur championship. Yeah. I was getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But um, at what age did you suddenly think that maybe you could do this as a as a career? To to be totally honest, I I really didn't think about it until I was maybe seventeen, hmm. seventeen, eighteen, something like that. That'd be just about when you won the when you won the boys' amateur. Correct. I mean, the, the the process was that. Um, as a as a boy, uh, I played all the different levels uh, in Spain, and I managed to actually do well under under ten, under twelve, under fourteen. And uh, the first time I played for uh, uh, the Spanish boys uh, team was a match uh, played in in Po, or south uh, west of France, a match against uh, France, and uh, that was my first trip uh, away from home, and. You know, I kept on playing golf and played, uh, you know, in Italy, um, all those amateur events, international amateur events. Uh, most of them were match play. And I did quite well, but uh, I didn't think of um, taking golf as, as a job or as a career until I was 17, pretty much when I managed to win the British boys and, and saw myself competing uh, at a pretty good level. Um, being consistent uh, um, uh, with the results. And it wasn't just Seve, there were, there were a sort of wave of Spaniards coming after Antonio Garrido, you had uh, Rivero yeah. and Pinero and Jose Maria Canazares, so they must have been people who you thought, well, if they're doing it, then I can do it. Well, the thing is, in those days, uh, golf in Spain was never uh, as popular as it, as it is today, so we didn't have much information of what was going on in the world of golf. Uh, Was it seen on TV? No, not at all. Not at all. Actually, to give you an example, when Seve won uh, the Open Championship, uh, his first Open Championship, the last day on Sunday, the TV in Spain was showing uh, the Open Championship and all of a sudden, uh, you know, nine holes to go, Seve having a great chance to win the, the Open Championship they cut the feed and they show a horse race. Uh, so that's that's how uh, important uh, golf was in those days. A big horse race? Huh? Well, no, just, uh, you know, one, <laughs> one of those horse races in Madrid, that was it. 
Oh dear. Anyway, so I mentioned you won the boys amateur, and at this point you're beginning to think I might be able to do this. And then winning the amateur championship at Formby, yeah. I mean, I, there can't have been many finals featuring two bigger players than you and uh, and Colin Montgomery. Although Monty wasn't, he, he wasn't a great player at that stage, but you sorted him out. But can you remember much about that final? Oh yeah, I remember a lot of it. Uh, I, I played, all, I did all kind of things to to Monty, poor Monty. I have to say, you know, I mean, he always reminds me of of how many putts I made that day, how many chips in I made that day. Uh, you know, I chipped in like twice, I think. I made putts from everywhere, and uh, uh, at one particular moment, uh, we were playing a par four, a short par four, and um, we both hit the fairway. I think it was the 10th. I'm not sure if it was the 10th or, or some other hole. And the green was elevated, and we could only see the the flag. We couldn't see the surface of the green. And uh, uh, the, whole, the the green was surrounded by, by mounds, uh, like an amphitheater uh, situation. And Monty hits the second shot. Uh, I think it was a wedge. And everybody went crazy, you know. Ah, so I thought well, it must be really close. So I went, hit my second shot, and people were even louder. And I said, "Well, that's that's pretty good." Then, so when when we got up to the green, Monty, <laughs> Monty was walking in front of me, and he was, you know, he was just stretching the neck, looking at at the situation. And there was only one ball on the green, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, I thought, "Wow." I might be. I might have folded, it, and actually I did. So I mean, it was one of those days. Uh, the final was played uh, to 36 holes, and I have to say that I played uh, extremely well that day. Yeah. So again, that you know, now you realise that you want to be a professional golfer. Yeah. Well, at least I. That's what I said to my parents. Uh, I said, "Listen, uh, you know, I would love to really give it a try." Uh, maybe you know, I don't know, two or three years, and see if I'm good enough, or, or or see what happens. And it's hard as well when you're trying to make it, and you're coming. You you're not coming with a silver spoon in your mouth and massive financial backing. You know, you right. you, you know, you've either mm-hmm. it's sink or swim. You've got to make it, otherwise, there's no real financial fallback for you. Correct. Uh, that was the that was the scenario in my case. Uh, I come from a very humble uh, family, uh, and. Uh, my parents didn't have any money to to pay, uh, you know, for uh, my expenses and all that. So I really had to do uh, really well. And uh, the good thing uh, in my case is that uh, after having a, a good amateur career, I went uh, to play the school in '85 uh, at La Manga, and uh, I managed to win the school. I got uh, the number one spot. So. I was guaranteed uh, to play, you know, uh, most of the whole uh, 86 season. And that opened uh, the door for uh, um, some contracts and that uh, obviously uh, made life a little bit easier. But do you think having the sort of modest background and no massive financial support, does that make give you an extra drive to, to succeed? No, it was not just... Uh, it was not just the lack of, uh, you know... Uh, not having a good, solid financial situation. I think it was more down to prove myself that uh, I was good enough to compete uh, at the highest level. I mean, that was what really drive me at that uh, at that time. You know, I wanted to prove myself that I was, you know, as good as anybody else. And was it ever a case as well of trying to prove that you? Belong because we know golf. A lot of golf is a very exclusive yeah. um, level of society, and you would come in and perhaps Sebi did as well as a bit of an outsider from coming from you know as I say more modest means that you've got a, not a chip on your shoulder, but you would say no, no, I I, I belong in, in this world. No, no, that was never my drive. Uh, no, I, my drive was to to be uh, the best player I could be uh, to improve uh, my game. Um, and to give myself the best chance to compete against the best in the world. I mean, that was my drive. Uh, you know, all, all all those other things, you know, didn't didn't bother me at all, or, or they were not in the back of my mind, anyways. You won a couple of times on the uh, on the European Tour once you got there in 1986. Yeah, correct. So. Uh, again, that's another stepping stone when you realise that you can you can win. Yes, but before before I won in Grand uh, Souciere, which was my first uh, victory on the European Tour, I have to say that I had you know like two or three uh, chances to win. Uh, Fulford was one of them, uh, and 
you start asking yourself questions, you know, when you put yourself in a situation to win and, and, and you don't, you know, you start, you know, questioning yourself, well, do I have uh, what, what it takes uh, uh, to win out here? And I remember I was uh, very nervous uh, playing uh, the last few holes at Cran Soucier. Uh, I was uh, short of breath and uh, uh, it's true, Andrew, that when, when you manage to win, somehow you break that invisible wall uh, that is in front of you. And uh, uh, that is a very important step uh, in, in any player that wants to really uh, um, become uh, a great player. But uh, So then we think from 86 winning a couple of times to 87. Now 87, with regards to you, for most people, means Muirfield Village, so you'd think it'd be a seamless progress. But there are swing issues that you yeah. have to try and sort out, and you, you've kind of done things yourself in terms of fixing yeah. things. Has that always been the case? Uh, not always. Um, I had my uh, my local coach at uh, the home uh, course uh, that kept an eye on me until I was, uh, I would say, 17, 18, until I virtually uh, turned professional. And it's true that uh, I got in touch also with uh, John Jacobs, mm. um, because John, um, uh, the Spanish Federation uh, used to uh, get John to go to Madrid uh, and to teach a group of professionals around Spain. And at the same time, um, the Federation brought um, the top amateur players um, of the year to be there uh, and to listen to what John had to say. So uh, for a while, I worked uh, with, with John Jacobs also when I was one house on tour. Yeah, and John Jacobs, um, again, many people listening will know, he, he is perhaps the most venerated coach of, yeah. uh, of a generation, and very old school, but I mean, you must have been just soaking in all this information all the time from, from John. Yes, I mean, he was, he was very simple. Uh, and I like that, uh, to be honest. And uh, but very effective. Uh, he uh, he explained uh, everything, uh, you know, really in in a in a manner that anybody could understand uh, what uh, he was trying to uh, pass on to you. And uh, in that regard, uh, he was a fantastic uh, teacher. Uh, and on top of that, he was the the man that uh, actually. Thanks to him, uh, you know, the European Tour pretty much is uh, what it is today. Yeah. Um, the Ryder Cup as well, obviously a huge, huge part of your life. I should ask you, your dancing coach. <laughs> no, that's your coach. Muirfield Village. <laughs> um, I mean, Muirfield Village was uh, was incredible because after the long-awaited win in 85, to win on American soil in, in 87, um, oh, it must have been a magical week for you. And Concord and everything and Jacqueline and just the whole week with you and Sam. Well, I mean, I was a rocky. I was 21 years old. Uh, I mean, I never, I had never seen uh, the Ryder Cup before, uh, and to be part of of that group of of players playing, uh, you know, uh, at the Ryder Cup in the States. I mean, that was, I mean, overwhelming. To be honest, I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do, what to say uh, when you are 21 years old and, and you sit on a room with Tony Jacqueline as captain and, and you look around you and you see Nick Faldo, Sandy Lai, Sevi and so on, Bernard Langer and, and all of a sudden you're thinking, what the hell am I doing here, you know? Uh, it was a fantastic week. Uh, everything went uh, uh, wonderfully well. Uh, as you said, we flew on Concord. Uh, that was Tony's idea. Uh, you know, uh, we, were, we had cashmere sweaters and, you know... Uh, We've, at least I felt like like a king, to be honest, uh, yeah. that way. And, I mean, the, the partnership with Seve was sort of obviously a natural fit, but when did you know that that was going to happen? Well, I mean, I don't know if it was a natural fit, but I think uh, if you ask Tony, uh, Tony had <laughs> had some uh, questions about me because I didn't have uh, all all that of of a good year in, in 17. I didn't play all that well, but I managed to make the team. And... Uh, I think he had some doubts about me, you know, being 21, playing in the States. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, what Sevi told me. And uh, at one point, Sevi approached Tony and said, Tony, don't you worry. Just put me with, with Jose. We'll, we'll, we'll do well. And did you feel when you were playing with him that... I, I don't know, because he was such an inspirational player, and in particular in the Ryder Cup, yeah. did you feel with him almost unbeatable? Well, I don't know if... Not at the very beginning, 
uh, not in, in, in 87. It, it was my, my first Ryder Cup, the first time I was paired with Seve. Um, I didn't think uh, of that at any time, but uh, it's true that the relationship between the two of us, it was a very close one. We played, with all due respect, uh, we played uh, similar games in the sense that um, we were not very straight off the tee. Uh, we had a wonderful short game, both of us, and the iron play was, was pretty good. Uh, we saw the, the game of golf in, in pretty much in the same way. Uh, we didn't have to discuss, uh, you know, when decisions had to be made, what type of shot to hit. Or, there was no discussion. I mean, pretty much straight away we, we saw the, the shot uh, that was supposed to, uh, to be hidden. And, um, but it's true that I felt really, really comfortable uh, playing with him. And uh, before we teed off on, on the first day on Friday, we were on the putting green, and I swear to you that I never had seen so many people on a golf course in my life before. So the whole, the first hole was packed with people, left, right. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was very noisy and... Uh, we had like five minutes to, to tee off and we were hitting pads on, on the putting green and uh, he says, well, it's time to go to the first tee. And it was a, a short walk, I don't know, about 30 yards or so. And there was a rope that was like four feet wide and people, you know, shouting USA, USA. And, you know, we, we started walking uh, towards the tee and uh, we were walking side by side and uh, he looked at me and said, uh, Oli, by the way, you play your game. I will take care of the rest. Don't you worry about anything else. Well, I mean, and that was it. That was the story. Uh, when I stood on that first tee, you know, I just uh, concentrated on my game. And I have to say that he took care of uh, business uh, on his own. <laughs> yeah. um, I, mean, I mean, the Ryder Cup and, and, and you and Xavier are so intellectual. Is there one particular Ryder Cup memory Playing Kiwa Island was so lively as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, that was a that was a tough one. Yeah, well, I mean, a tough one, obviously, in terms of defeat. Did you? No, no, but on the course, were things just? Do you think getting a little bit too correct? Much? Uh, not not because of, I I said it was a tough one, not so much because of the defeat, which it was, but it was uh, the atmosphere that was built around it. Uh, I don't think uh, um, it was uh, the right one. Uh, I don't think the. Uh, the philosophy and the idea of Samuel Ryder about the Ryder Cup was that one. Uh, and uh, uh, there were tough, tough incidents, uh, comments from, from people, uh, how, how people reacted and so on. So it was, it was a tough week. What is your favourite Ryder Cup memory overall? I mean, you know, we could jump ahead, obviously, to your captaincy, which will come to shortly. But is there one thing in terms of playing that, that stands out that you remember most fondly? Well, I would say... Uh, I think 87 was, was a fantastic Ryder Cup. It, it was the first one for me. I played with Seve, um, you know, but, but also the one in Spain. Mm. You know, the one in Spain, uh, first time ever that uh, the Ryder Cup was played uh, away from the islands. And uh, to, to, on top of it, to play at Valderrama uh, in Spain with, uh, with Seve as captain, uh, Actually, achieving the victory over there, I think that that's that's also very special. You notice I've glossed over the the dance. I've, uh, <laughs> I've got to go home. Was that that was just totally off the cuff, impromptu, just heat, yeah, it was heat just, of the moment excitement. Correct. Okay. It was just as simple as that. I mean, I've, uh, my uh, dancing skills are. are um, Quite low. <laughs> oh, I thought it was quite good. Did you have an internal tune going in your head? <laughs> no, it was it was the band. We had the the band there uh, playing La Cucaracha, and that was it. You oh. know, that, that's what that's what happened. That is a toe tapper. <laughs> everyone, everyone gets off of that one. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously, we, before we talk about your individual achievements as well, we should really because it leads naturally to to Seve and uh, how much of a a sort of inspiration and a friend was he throughout your, your career? I mean, I, I learned a lot from Seve. Uh, I've always said that I've had uh, the best seat in the house uh, whenever I played with Seve uh, at the Ryder Cup. I have wonderful memories, uh, very special moments. Uh, but it was uh, his attitude, his demeanor, uh, his self-belief, uh, his imagination around the golf course. 
you know, I learned so many things from from playing with Seve that, uh, you know, I tried to to follow that path uh, the best way I could, yeah, in in my in my career. And in terms of the Masters, he certainly showed you how to oh, play yeah. the course. I mean, would you have been able to do what you'd done at Augusta without? No, well, it would have been very difficult because at the end of the day, um, he took me under his wing at Augusta. Uh, he showed me uh, uh, how to play certain holes, where to play certain shots. Uh, uh, he, in a way, he made me believe that I had the game to win over there. Um, and uh, to be totally honest, uh, you know, I don't think... I would have done so well at Augusta if it wasn't uh, for all that um, information or learning experience that I had uh, from Seve. What did you think of Augusta the first time you saw it? Because obviously you'd won the amateur championships. What, what, yeah. what were your first impressions of the place? Well, I think it was pretty much uh, like heaven for any any golfer. Um, I remember the first time uh, I went to the driving range, uh, the conditions were so perfect, so pure, that I dropped a few balls on on the ground and I had a sandwich in my hands and it took me like 15 shots to hit the ground. <laughs> I didn't want to spoil <laughs> I didn't want to spoil that perfect turf over there. So um, and then when I played the course uh, the first year, obviously uh, it doesn't matter if you are done well as as an amateur. Uh, no amateur player is is really. Uh, prepare for what uh, Augusta uh, um, gives you. Uh, greens, uh, speed on, the, on those greens, the imagination you have to have to hit certain chips around the area. Um, so I, I didn't do well uh, the first uh, year around in 85. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but as I said, when I spent more time with Seve practicing every time we, I was there, we played every single day together, uh, and uh, that helped me a lot. I can't remember if it was at Augusta or which American tournament it was where a first tee announcer really struggled with you. Oh, it was the TPC. It was the TPC. Oh, yeah, it was the TPC. That was a beauty. What did he eventually come out with? Well, you know, we got to the first tee. And uh, the gentleman approached me and said, well, listen, you know, I want to spell your name properly. So, you know, I was there like five minutes before my tea of time and I explained uh, how to say Olazabal and to emphasize on the tha, like, like they said, it's like a TH in English and so on. And he went there and he, he said it really very well, like eight, ten times. So it was my turn to tee off and... And I got onto the tee, I tee the ball up, and uh, he says, and now on the tee from Spain, Jose Maria, Obalala, Obalala, Obalala. And, and he actually, I mean, he got a stop, and at the end he said, okay, you know who he is. <laughs> and then I had to, and then I did. <laughs> oh, dear. Bless them. Bless the Americans. <laughs> anyway, so at Augusta, at Augusta, they were fine. TPC, Augusta, they were fine. Four, please. Olathabal now yeah. driving. And... Uh, we mentioned at the start of the interview coming close uh, behind Woozy yeah. in uh, 1991. Uh, frustrating, obviously, for you, but again, it gave you a sort of a belief that uh, you could win there. Well, Andrew, I wouldn't say it was frustrating, to be honest. Uh, you know, it was the first time ever in my career that I had a chance to uh, to have a go at, at a major event. Uh, and I remember in those days, uh, Sergio uh, Gomez, my manager, who traveled with me uh, to most of the tournaments, uh, uh, with his wife, uh, they were just, you know, by the clubhouse. Uh, and when I finished uh, my round, uh, I walked uh, to the clubhouse and there they were. And they were both, you know, quite sad, you know. And so, you know, uh, actually, Serge's wife uh, was, was crying and Sergio was, you know, uh, what a pity, this and that. And I looked at them and said, listen, you know, I'm really happy with the situation. You know, I showed myself that... Uh, I put myself in a situation where I can win a major event that gave, gives me, you know, self-belief that, uh, you know, if I keep on uh, doing what I'm doing, I will have more opportunities. So in that regard, I was pretty pleased with the with the outcome of the tournament. Even though I finished second to Uzi, uh, it gave me uh, self-belief and confidence that, uh, you know, I had the game to put myself 
sooner or later in that situation again. And it was a, a huge period of the European success as well because, yeah. you know, you got Lyle and Faldo and Woozy yeah. and then there's a brief interlude with couples, but then it's Langer. And then 1994, well, tell us about it. What uh, Did everything just click that week? Well, actually, yes. I mean, I played the, the week before uh, in New Orleans and I finished second. And I was I was really, you know, playing well. I was really hitting the ball well and uh, quite rare in me. Uh, actually, I was even driving the ball well. And uh, Augusta in those days uh, obviously was not as long as it is now. Fairways were a little bit wider. Uh, there was no so many trees so close to the fairways and uh, there was no that second cut. Greens were really hard. Um, and, uh, well, I think in a way it played uh, to my advantages. Uh, you didn't need to be long off the tee or extremely accurate, but you had to be really sharp with your iron and your short game. And uh, when I got there in '94, I was, you know, I was feeling really comfortable with uh, about my game. Yeah, I mean, fifteenth uh, has been quite good to you over the the years at Augusta. That yes, a, that was a key part in coming down the stretch there, wasn't it? Yeah, well, especially that year. Yeah, uh, I took a gamble. Uh, I have to say, on Sunday, uh, I was in between clubs. Uh, uh, between a four iron and a five iron onto that green, but the greens were pretty firm, and um, I didn't want to hit hit the ball over the green because I knew the chip was was going to be very treacherous. And I took a gamble. I went I went uh, with the five iron. I hit it as hard as I could. And when I hit it, I thought it was you know it was going to be perfect. I thought it was going to carry uh, that edge of the green with no problem. Uh, but, you know, uh, the ball just pitched on the edge of, of the green and managed to stay on that uh, first cut uh, on top of, of the slope. Yeah, and that was, that was a big change, yeah. What was the feeling when, because people talk about when they win the first major, it's something they've wanted for so long and it happens and it's almost not, it's not jubilation or exultation, it's just, I don't know what the feeling is. I raised my hands and that's, uh, that's how I felt. Uh, I've, I've, I've told this story quite a few times to family members and friends and uh, when everything was over, um, I had a sense of relief. Uh, when I imagined myself winning my first major, I thought it was going to be, as you said, total jubilation, you know, explosion of joy and so on. Uh, but uh, when it happened, uh, it was more of uh, a sense of uh, relief. Well, I've, I've done it, I've achieved it, uh, final is mine. Um, and I remember when everything was done and over. Uh, in those days, we used to have, we used to attend dinner with some of the members of the club. So I, I drove back to the house we hired. And uh, when I got there with the car, I turned the engine off and, and I sat down in front of the car for like 10, 15 minutes before I went inside the house. And I was trying to recollect on what had happened that day. And I actually asked myself, well, is this it? I mean, I just went, won a major at the Masters, and is it, is it it? I mean, I, I didn't feel that joy, that jubilation, that, you know, that happiness. And, uh, you know, it was one of those moments. I don't know. It's funny, it's something David Duval talked about after winning the Open in 2001. It's kind of an is-this-it is feeling. It's a, it's a strange thing that none of us know about, but it must be a very odd thing to experience. Well, it was odd in the sense that, you know, I imagine myself, you know, jumping up and down and, and, you know, having a huge smile in my face and, you know, telling everybody, you know, I managed to win the Masters and all that. But, uh, you know, when it happened, it was, it was just... Um, that that other um, you know feeling you know it was it was a strange. So do you understand some people who can't kick on and then win another major? Because what what did something change in you? Did you become no it did, no no it didn't change anything in me. Uh, I have to say that you know as as weeks went by, uh, I realized that uh, how special it was, uh, how big of an achievement it was. Uh, no, it didn't change anything in me. No, no, uh, I was I was still uh, eager to to win more. Hmm. Then problems come in '95, '96. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you felt? Was it pain in your feet that yeah, was great. the first manifestation of it? Yeah, it was. It was in my big thumb on the first joint of the, my big thumb, uh, and uh, I was playing. Um, 
uh, the German masters. In, this is in your tour of the pain. Then. Yeah, correct. Yeah. In, in 94, uh, after, well, just finishing the season, uh, he was in Stuttgart. Uh, that, of course, is quite healing. And uh, I started having some issues, especially on the last few holes, where, where you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really, you know, put any, any pressure, pressure on, on my feet. Um, you know, I, I went to see different doctors and uh, finally I got a little surgery done to it. And the doctor said, well, we should be, you know, we should be okay in, in a couple of months time or so. And I started playing in 95 after a, a good break in winter time. And, uh, you know, the pain came back. Uh, and I remember that, you know, I, I barely could finish uh, the round of golf. And... Uh, um, you know, um, I really struggled. It was uh, I was under a lot of pain. Uh, I remember, you know, starting the rounds quite decently, having a good score. But by the time I got to the 12, 13 hole, I was in such pain that I always, you know, ended up, you know, putting, you know, a few bad swings and, and shooting uh, pretty badly. I remember reading at the time, and you were like 29, 30. Uh, correct, was, yeah. I mean, and but there were tales that, you know, you were... Basically crawling. Through. Well, that was that was uh, uh, afterwards. In in '95, I had to stop playing. Um, actually, I talked to Tony Jacklin. I said, "Listen, I'm not going to be able to make the the Ryder Cup team." Uh, and I stopped playing in September, uh, late August, uh, and. Uh, the situation got worse. Where in '96 I couldn't I couldn't walk at all. Uh, I couldn't put uh, I couldn't stand on my feet. Uh, I remember having to crawl uh, to the bathroom, and uh, whenever I was at home, I was in, on the couch, and you know it, it was so bad that you know if I had to stand up to do whatever, either if it was you know going to the bathroom or just trying to 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 get a glass of water or whatever, I delayed as much as I could at that moment because it was so painful. So, Did you think at that time, again, you were still a young man, that golf might be... Yes, uh, at the end of um, 96, uh, to be totally honest, uh, you know, after watching uh, the European Tour on TV and seeing you know, my peers playing golf and winning events, uh, at one stage I thought you know, golf was over for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, without stating the obvious, how low did did it get for you in terms of you thinking something else to do or just the golf's been taken away from you? At that time, you know, I mean, I felt I felt bad. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's true that the family was was uh, a great support, uh, and uh, what made that situation. A little bit easier was the fact that I had already won the the ninety four Masters, and in a way, I could say to myself, you know, even if I don't play golf ever again, uh, I managed to achieve you know something really special. So, uh, in a way, I mean, it was tough, but but that pain was was easier in a way because of that. I mean, just remind us exactly of the the. Diagnosis because there was an initial misdiagnosis yeah. and then you'd go to see Hans Müller Wolfhard. Correct. So what? What? How, how did it well, start I went, to improve? Well, I went to a bunch of doctors uh, and they all thought it was some kind of rheumatism and uh, you know I took medication for it, but uh, the situation didn't improve at all uh, for months. Uh, I spent like you know doing well a year or so taking the medication with no improvement and. It was one of those stories where all of a sudden um, somebody called the office uh, saying that uh, he was he played as an amateur um, with me. He he belonged to the German team and he was working for Adidas in those days. Uh, that you know they could maybe help uh, by building special shoes to avoid those point, pressure points on my feet and see if if. By doing that, um, they could help my situation. And, well, uh, we agreed, and we, I flew to Munich, and when I, when I landed in Munich, actually the guy said, well, listen, we do have a wonderful doctor here that, that's uh, wonders uh, with, with athletes, and uh, we got an appointment so you can, you can see the doctor. Do you want to do that? And I said, well, I mean... I'm here. I mean, there's nothing, nothing to lose. So we went uh, and see the doctor, and uh, he. I was going just for the day, and when I saw the doctor, he said, "Well, could you stay for 
for a few more days. I would like to do, you know, a bunch of tests uh, with you. And uh, well, I said, okay, well, we'll do, we'll do so. And I went through different uh, doctors. I get an MRI done and, you know, blood tests and, and things like that. And after three days or so, uh, I got back to him and uh, we had a meeting and he said, well, you know, I believe they, they got the wrong diagnosis and I think we can, we can actually uh, solve the situation. So that was, that was the scenario. If you heard some voices in the background there interrupting Jose Maria telling us this very important story, I think it was Paul Laurie just shouting loudly, because <laughs> that's what he does. So here we are, senior steward event, and that's what you get woozy wandering behind Paul Laurie shouting loudly. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, it must have been just such an enormous relief to feel the pain going away and, and, and realising that you can play golf. Well, it took a while, to be honest. It took a while. He, he Actually, he was very straight to me and said, well, it's going to really take a while until you are pain-free again because all your nerve system is being affected for, you know, by not walking properly uh, for a year and a half, you've lost, you know, your, your muscle uh, structure and all that and uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, and, uh, but... It's true that I spent uh, a few months uh, over there in Germany uh, with with the physio team that he has and with all the 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 work that we had to put in. Uh, but it's true that uh, I was able to play a few events in in '97 in a row. I mean, usually I used to play four events in a row, but. Uh, because I st- still felt pain in my feet, I, um, I used to play like maybe a couple and then take a, a couple of weeks off and, and work on my feet again and so on. Uh, but it was great to be able to to play golf again. So, I mean, getting into the '97 Ryder Cup team that was touch and go. In fact, yeah. uh, Miguel Angel Martin, who coincidentally I think is correct. leading he's, he's today, yes, correct. Yeah, because he was injured, he was so clo- he was in the team and yeah. so close. But you you got in eventually when he correct. had to drop out. Correct. I mean, that was a, a massive Ryder Cup for you to be involved in because it was Valderrama, because it was Serie. Yeah, because, yeah, it was, as I said before, and, yeah, I mean, that was a very special Ryder Cup, uh, having Serie's captain uh, being played in, uh, in Valderrama. Um, but not just by that. You know, I went through a lot of emotions that week, uh, obviously from seeing yourself not being able to play golf ever again to, to see yourself... Uh, uh, you know, playing the Ryder Cup, uh, you know, I went through through a lot of emotions that week. Um, it was uh, it was a wonderful week, but at the same time, it was a tough week. Uh, and I think it showed uh, at that uh, press interview. As you said, you know, once you've got the diagnosis and the treatment, it wasn't all roses and it wasn't all no. plain sailing because the '99 Masters, which you won, was like an oasis in a desert it was so you know yeah. that came along and, but your form hadn't been good and great so where did that one come from was that just the inspiration of of the masters well in a way yes uh, i remember that getting to that week uh, with different feelings to the one in 94 uh, my driver was very poor at the time i was hitting it all over the park uh, the rest of the game was actually it was really nice and I remember uh, playing a couple of practice rounds with Seve, and I was hitting it left and right everywhere uh, off the tee. But then once I, I put the ball on the fairway, I mean, the, the irons were very sharp, and, uh, and the short game was still there. And on uh, Wednesday, uh, we played nine holes, Seve and I, and he said to me, Jose, listen to what I'm going to say to you. I mean, your iron play is great, your short game is good. All you need to do is just put the ball on, on the fairway. And that's it. So really, slow down that backswing. You know, hit it easily. Don't try to hit it hard uh, at all. And, uh, you know, I went to the drive range and, and I really worked on it. And, you know, somehow I managed to reduce uh, the bad shots and, and to be more effective of the tee. And uh, that's what happened. I mean, the first day, I, you know, I hit more fairways and, you know, I put a decent score. And, and so it happened the second day. On, on Saturday, I played ext- extremely well. Didn't make any putts, virtually. Uh, I gave myself a lot of chances, but didn't make any putts. And, and then on Sunday, everything, you know, was a spot on. When you look at your success at the Masters and also your number of wins worldwide and big wins, I remember a 12-shot win at Firestone. Was it? Firestone, yeah. That was a special week too, yeah. I think that was 
the best week of golf in my career, to be honest. But when you look at that, do you think in other majors that you have underperformed, and do you think do they are they a source of frustration for you? No, uh, you know I'm really very happy with uh, with my record. Uh, you know, I was never a long hitter, uh, and I was never very accurate of the tee, so I had to fight my way. Uh, on the golf course to to get an, a good score or a decent score, and for my game was not suited for certain golf courses. Uh, let's say uh, U.S. Open tournaments. I mean, if you don't hit fairways, uh, you know you're not going to do well. So um, I've I've always struggled at the U.S. Open. What about the Open though? Because uh, well, the Open. Well, the Open. I would say the Open. I finished third twice, but but at the Open, uh, you can find yourself. In similar situations, uh, in the sense that um, it depends on the year, you can have high rough or not. But the bunkers are as penal as as the rough, as a very severe rough. So if you're not if you're not really good off the tee and and, and you end up hitting you know uh, your tee shots in in some of those bunkers, you're going to lose shots. So uh, you know uh, it was. I think it was more down to that. Do you think a player of your model, if they come out on tour now with your skill set, would they have less of a chance now the way the game is going? Because it's it's so not, much more about power now. Yeah, with no, with no questions about that. I mean, this modern golf that uh, you see now on, on TV, uh, well, it has changed, let's say, from 10 years uh, or so. I mean, now hitting it long is a premium. If you don't hit it long, you know, you might be a great player. Don't get me wrong. But uh, your chances of of making history, in a way, uh, are quite slim. Um, and don't get me wrong. You still have to have a good short game. You have to still play well and so on. But if you don't hit the ball far nowadays, I mean, your chances are are quite slim. Actually, talking about technology, were you one of the last players to cling on to the persimmon heads? Yes, were, yes, correct. Were you just were you just about the last player on the range? Well, it was. Uh, what I year think, was this now? I think it was the last three players that uh, we used uh, persimmon heads: uh, Bernard Langer, uh, Davis Love, and myself. I oh, think was, I, I think I think we were the last three players uh, switching to metals. Hmm. Why was that? You just loved, just loved the feel of it. Well, I mean, but you realise that at the end of the day, uh, you know... Can't fight it. Can't correct. Uh, as simple as that. Uh, you know. We've got to get to... On 99, actually mentioning your Masters, and the other seismic event of 99 was, was Brookline, and you yeah. were right there, and Justin Leonard in the singles mm-hmm. match. Give us your memories of that, because everybody has an opinion on, on the rights and wrongs of it, but what were you thinking on the 17th finger? Well, I mean, I had a good advantage uh, playing with Justin, but it's true that he he made a good run and made a, a bunch of birdies in a row. And uh, when when he hold that putt on 17, it's true that I had a similar distance putt. It was a long one. To make my putt, I still have a chance uh, playing 18. After, you know, what happened, uh, you have to go back to what, happened that week with the media uh, and the U.S. team. Um, on paper, we were a much weaker team than, than they were. Uh, and everybody th- thought, well, every American thought, that it was going to be a walk in the park. And all of a sudden, we got on to Sunday, and we're four points ahead. And the media crucified uh, the U.S. team during the whole week crucify the whole team so I think when all of a sudden uh, you know after winning the first four or five matches uh, on that Sunday and uh, um, them thinking that well now we have a chance of, of winning this Ryder Cup I think those all those emotions uh, showed up and, and that's why people reacted the way uh, they did on 17 was it nice obviously not but uh, you know when I look back at it uh, you know, I understand what happened. Mm. Was that the hardest defeat to... Yeah, no questions about that. that yeah. I mean, the, the immediate aftermath of that must have been... Yeah, it was tough. It was room. tough. I remember uh, walking in, the, in that locker room and uh, um, there were a few players uh, crying. I was one of them. So it was another one. Uh, you know, there were three or four players crying there and 
Uh, it was it was a tough one to swallow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to to sort of finish Ryder Cup chat. Obviously, then you go a lot later and you'd become a vice captain. But uh, the captaincy at Medina. If you're talking great turnarounds yeah. for America, Brookline, that was an, I mean, just an astonishing turnaround. It, we could do a, you know, a whole hour's interview just on Medina. It must have been an incredible week. It was a fantastic week. Uh, when I got there, I thought we had a good chance uh, of winning over there. Um, I was very happy with the team. Uh, you know, it was a very strong team. Players playing really well. Um, and, uh, you know, Things didn't go our way the first two days. Uh, we didn't play all that poorly. I, I, you know, I really believe that the way players played from T to green in both teams was was very similar. Uh, the only difference was that, you know, the Americans were holding pads and uh, and we were not. Uh, simple as that. And uh, what happened on on Sunday? Well, is one of those things that uh, there is. N- n- well, there's no way you can explain it, to be honest. Uh, there is a lot of uh, elements or, uh, yeah, elements that might contribute to that. Um, I think, first of all, the Americans uh, consider that uh, the tournament was pretty much, uh, pretty much uh, their tournament already. Uh, on our hand, we had the first Ryder Cup that uh, Seve was not going to be in any way shape or form uh, with us, uh, life at least. Uh, I emphasize on that. Uh, that's why on Sunday, uh, you know, it was very important for me to have the service uh, low one feature uh, on the clothes. And um, and the players just, uh, you know, played extraordinarily well. I mean, they, they brought the best in them. Uh, they played great golf. They hold pads, they hold chips. Uh, and they believe in themselves and you know I have to take my hat off to those 12 guys because what they did uh, was just uh, you know just amazing Can you remember or can you share what words that you said because the Saturday night was kind of key where we've spoken to Ian Bolter about it Well I think I think Saturday afternoon was key so, uh, you know we were uh, four down and, and the afternoon session we were not looking good uh, most of the of the day uh, and all of a sudden the way how things turn around uh, with Ian, um, it was just amazing. The way he celebrated on 18, on 18 uh, when he turned around and looked at, at uh, the rest of the team there. and I think it transpired to every member of that team. Uh, uh, they made them believe, uh, he made them believe that, you know, it was still doable. There was still a little chance. Uh, and on that Saturday, we went back to what happened in Brookline, uh, four, four points ahead. And uh, I talked about, uh, you know, self-belief, playing with no fear uh, and, and savvy. And, uh, you know, that I was really proud of, of them. And, you know, that we still had a chance if we start, if we had a good start um, uh, in those first few matches, uh, that it was still doable. Mm. Um, can you remember what you said at the uh, closing ceremony? They were lying about not all, all men die. Yeah. Was that? I mean, that was a, a very special and emotional line. It had been an emotional week. I remember Seve always talked about destiny, no destiny. Do you, do you kind of share that belief in destiny on a golf course or in well, sport or in life? Well, listen, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult, obviously, to prove that. But uh, when you look at what happened on that Sunday, uh, there is no any any explanations for it, but uh, obviously I want to believe that, uh, in a way, you know, Sevi was there, Sevi was present. Uh, it was present in every player in that team, and uh, you know, somehow they, all those players played in a way, the way Sevi played uh, most of his career. How difficult were the, you know, Sevi's fights? Up until like it was tough. It was tough. I mean, that's, it, was, it was a long fight as well. And it, must it, was, have been... it was a long one, and it was a tough one. I remember, uh, you know, visiting him uh, a few times at his home, and uh, you could see the slow deterioration uh, in his health, and it was it was uh, it was hard to watch. Uh, very tough. Yeah. Uh, and a uh, cliche, but he has always come across as a big brother figure. Yeah. To you and again, I remember the BBC Sports Personality yeah. Lifetime Achievement Award you presented. Yeah. It that was, um, that was that was two brothers talking to each other. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was very tough yeah, because uh, we knew pretty much uh, uh, what the outcome was going to be, and uh, 
was going to be just a matter of time, but uh, <laughs> he kept uh, his spirit until the very last uh, moment. And, uh, you know, those moments are uh, uh, moments that define a person and uh, uh, make you see life uh, from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What um, do you think of now in terms of playing? And you know, we go from talking very emotionally about Seve to... You know, considering you the rest of your career, because golfers have long careers. Long careers, yeah. Long careers. <laughs> I don't know if that is good or bad. <laughs> well, because some players thrive, at, you know, in the Champions Tour, the yeah. Seniors Tour. But what are your sort of off-course concerns going? Any sort of business things do you have? What do you do to occupy your time? Well, I tell you what. I mean, I I enjoy a very relaxed life. Mm. Uh, you know, I. I love hunting with my father. Uh, I love I love walking up in the hills and and so on. So, I I love home in a way. Uh, and in that regard, you know, is as years go by, it's tougher to uh, to travel. Uh, you know, your, your your body doesn't hold uh, as well all those hours on on planes and airports and things like that. So, uh, I try to make the best of uh, of home. Uh, as much as possible and in that regard you know I'm a very uh, relaxed guy you know I can spend you know days um, in at, at home uh, yes you know maybe watching uh, some sports or just uh, you know uh, playing a few holes with a friend uh, and you know uh, playing uh, spending time with family in that regard you know I'm, I'm quite easy um, I, I do I do uh, golf course design and that's you know that's an, another uh, thing that uh, with time as you get older uh, you look at it as um, something to do in life that is related to golf uh, and uh, you know when I am at home and you see you know a group of kids uh, hitting balls and you know, I approach them, and if I can give them any advice, I mean that that really fulfills me. But it's interesting. You talked about you know in the late seventies when Sergio was winning his first Open, and the TV coverage cut out. And golf, strangely, despite Spanish success, wasn't huge in Spain. No. But is it bigger now? Would you get? It is, yeah. And yeah. you would get recognised wherever you go. And well, yeah, true. Do the children know who you are when you're offering them tips? Yes, okay. yes, they do. And in that in that sense. Uh, uh, the uh, the image of golf uh, in Spain has changed uh, drastically from you know 30, 40 years ago. Uh, no questions about that. And on top of that, we've been lucky enough and blessed uh, with the fact that uh, you know we had Sergio. We still have Sergio, uh, John Ram. We have great players, great young players, uh, and you could see that uh, the last time around uh, when John went to play uh, the Spanish Open in Madrid. I mean. There was huge crowds, and uh, they were, you know, supporting uh, John and Sergio, and and we do have a, a pretty good, uh, solid group of players with Rafa and Pablo, and you know, a bunch of, of players. How have you looked uh, on Sergio and and his career? Because he, with all the talent in the world, and yes, he's won the Masters now. Have you sort of been almost like Sevi was to you, sort of offering him? Elderly we, words of advice. Uh, well, we offered as much as bus, uh, advice as, as we could, but I have to say that uh, the relationship uh, was not as close as it was between Sevi and myself. Uh, very, there is a reason behind it, is that when Sergio first got uh, into the uh, golf world, uh, straight away, I mean, he finished second to Tiger uh, 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 at Medina, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, he was up there, and and he went uh, straight to the to the PGA Tour. He he has played most of his career in the States, and uh, you know we didn't have that closeness uh, relationship as as we used to have uh, between Sebi and myself. When you look at that, it's interesting. You talk about you sound like a man after my own heart, up in the mountains, away from everything else. When you look at the modern world and social media yeah. and the golfers living on social media, yeah. that holds, I presume, no appeal whatsoever. To no, it, it doesn't appeal to me. No, I don't have uh, either Facebook or Twitter and other. Uh, you not know, even Instagram. Not even Instagram. <laughs> Photos so, of the mountains. Correct. You know. Uh, you know, I was raised. You know, 
when I was an amateur, I, I managed to play a few tournaments as uh, professional events, and I shared rooms with uh, Cañizares, uh, Rivero, Pinero, and so on. And in those days, you practice in the morning, uh, play 18 holes, had lunch, practice a little bit in the afternoon, and by 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you were done. And we used to go back to the house we hired or to the hotel, and we used to spend the rest of the afternoon either chatting, telling stories, or playing cards. Mm. Uh, now it's a completely different world. You have players, you know, with personal trainer, uh, coach, mm. mental coach, they have to go to the gym as soon as soon as, as they finish the day or even before they start playing golf or warming up. So, you know, and then you do have, you know, the, these wonderful phones where you have, you know, absolutely everything and, and, and you can actually enter a courtesy car to go from the golf course to the hotel hmm. and you might spend, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes in a car and the guy next to you is just, that half an hour is just watching a phone. Because it used to be so, talking. Well, we used to be talking, yeah, yeah correct. Um, Tiger Woods, I did want to talk about Tiger Woods, because especially where you were with your injury as well, yeah. a different type of injury, but similarly people would say you you were gone. Well, limited lim- limited injury yeah. anyway, so... Yeah, and so did you... limiting injury. Yeah, did you believe that he could come back if he got... I, listen, if, if you ever... Uh, can get hold of uh, my uh, answers to that question through his whole uh, period. I've always said that it was just going to be a matter of uh, him getting back to uh, being good physically. I mean, the rest, I had no doubts. I've played with, with many great players, uh, but Tiger had something, something special. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was going to be just a matter of... Uh, him being healthy. If he was healthy again, I, I didn't have any doubts that he would do well and he would have chances to win more majors. I get the impression from talking to you that if you had, you know, you've had your success, but if you wanted to win more and more majors, of course you did, but you wouldn't envy him his lifestyle because he had no privacy. No, no I mean, you know, that's true. I mean, uh, once you get to that level, it's true that sometimes, you know, you you cannot go really actually go out like we do to a restaurant to have dinner, you know. Uh, you have to pretty much book a, a private place and, and, mm. and have dinner and so on. So I don't envy that part of, of uh, that life. Right, OK, now I was going to ask you what you do when you're not playing. I have done, but so you're up in the mountains with family. Uh, for some reason, we discovered you're a fan of the Discovery Channel. Is that right? Yes, I, I love uh, I love those uh, you know programs about animals and uh, nature and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I think they're I taking do. over the PGA Tour Discovery. <laughs> I think they own the PGA Tour. Uh, and a fan of pop music, I'm told. Well, music in general. Music yeah. in general. Yeah. Okay, pop music, music sounds like yeah. Yeah. Dad, I'm dad. a terrible dancer, as you no, know. But, <laughs> you know. It's clear. Like, anyone in particular in pop music wise? No. Well, if in my days, obviously, your Cocker and uh, Tina Turner and. You know, I mean, in those days, when I was, you know, 15, 16, I mean, they were, they were rocking, so... Okay. You know. <laughs> right, now we've got, uh, we've got a Hilton quick nine questions for us. These are quick nine okay. questions. Just nine, nine very quick holes here. So who would be in your dream four ball? Tiger, Sebi. Uh, and Monty. <laughs> um, Jack. That's it. You've made the four ball. You okay, can't. Uh, you you, you're included in the four okay, ball. All right. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Uh, best city you visited? Oh, there is there is a lot of them. Uh, my God. Where would you like to go tomorrow if you could fly in any city? Carmel. Little, not big city. Carmel. On the Monterey Peninsula. On the Monterey okay. Peninsula. Right. If I had to, if I had a chance, you know, to spend three, four days without playing golf, just being there, just walking up and down that beach and, and, and seeing the sunset, uh, that, that, that would be a good one. There we are, two down. Favourite Ryder Cup memory? Sort of covered this, but one memory of all? One memory of all, I would say between 87 and 97, either of the two. OK. What's the first thing in your suitcase when you go on holiday? On holidays? Do you go on holiday? I've never been on holidays, bloody hell. OK. Um, you're a staycation man. Well, Stay at home. no, a uh, pair of boots. Pair of good boots for walking? Yeah, correct. For hunting. Uh, 94 or 99 Masters win? Without question, 99. OK. 
Okay. Favourite club in the bag? Butter. One place, one place on your bucket list. Any one place you'd like to go? We sort of mentioned Carmel, but any place in the world, anything you'd like to see in the world? Uh, New Zealand. I was there once, and I think it's a wonderful country. Uh, I would love to go back there, yeah. yeah Michael Campbell will be happy. Uh, red or white wine? Red. Red, okay. uh, And if you can only listen to one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? One song? Just one song. I mean, that's, that's cruel. Give the best time of my life. I think it was a song uh, in the old days. Uh, who was the group? Uh, it was some. It was something like that. We're going to look this up. Don't worry. This is going to be edited okay. down. So it'll be a very quick answer, and okay. we'll play out with this music on Life on Tour. Listen, thank you very much for sharing okay. your your Life on Tour. It was never healthy. A pleasure. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.